Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Since the shooting at the Covenant School just over two weeks ago, thousands have flocked to the Capitol to demand tougher gun laws. But these demands aren't exactly new. According to the World Population Review, Tennessee ranks 11th in the country for gun death rate. Despite ongoing demands over the years, Tennessee lawmakers have actually loosened our gun laws. Now, just yesterday, Governor Bill Lee did announce an executive order intended to strengthen background checks. He says the goal is to increase the effectiveness of the state's process by streamlining the information provided to the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. He's also asking that department to examine the process for purchasing guns and to submit a report about the changes that might be needed. Governor Lee says this is one step towards reform to prevent mass shootings like the one that claimed the lives of three school children at Covenant School. WPLN's criminal justice reporter, Paige Flager, is here to talk about how it fits into Tennessee's history of gun laws and regulations. Hey, Paige. Hey. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. So in addition to that executive order, Lee, he also called for on the legislature to make another change to gun laws. What is he hoping that they'll come up with? The governor wants the legislature to come up with a measure that would help keep guns out of the hands of people who are a threat to themselves or others. And this type of reform has been enacted in other states after mass shootings. Florida, for example, passed what's called a red flag law after the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. If a friend or a family is worried about someone, they can request that their guns are temporarily removed. But here in Tennessee, Governor Bill Lee was really careful to not call what he is suggesting a red flag law, in part because Tennessee's Republican supermajority would likely not pass legislation if it was labeled that. Mm, Okay, so but how is what he's is he asking for the legislature to do? How is that different than a red flag law? So the governor's idea is to build on a law and a process that already exists called an order of protection law. Often people get orders of protection if they're in an abusive relationship. One option is that they can file the order with the court, indicate that someone has a gun and they seem willing to use it. Then the court determines how true that is and in some cases requests that that person dispossess themselves of their firearms. Lee wants to essentially expand that process beyond just domestic relationships. Our judicial system is prepared. It has years of experience in dealing with orders of protection. The process is there. They'll be well equipped for this new order. Uh, I believe that this will protect victims, that it'll hold dangerous people accountable and away from firearms, and that it'll preserve constitutional rights at the same time. But what Lee is proposing there would expand on a system that's already quite flawed. Mm. There is very little evidence that Tennessee's laws are enough to protect victims of domestic violence. The state has a high rate of women killed by men. And here in Nashville, it's estimated that more than a third of domestic violence homicides are committed with a gun that the perpetrator never should have had. So as it stands, there are relatively few options for getting guns taken away. Right. But 
What about getting a gun in the first place? On yesterday's show, we talked to kids about gun laws, and they said it's easy to get a gu- their hands on a gun. Mm-hmm. And as it stands now, you can give a general sense of, you know, can you give us a general sense of who can have guns and what are some of those rules here? So Tennessee has very few restrictions when it comes to getting a gun. 18-year-olds can carry without a license and purchase long guns, including AR-15s. Although they can't buy handguns from a firearms dealer, there is a loophole that they could be gifted one or that they could buy one in a person-to-person private sale, which are largely unregulated here. And in 2021, the legislature passed a permitless carry law, which removed a lot of the requirements and training for getting guns. So access is easy and unregulated enough that in the case of the Covenant School shooting, uh, the shooter was able to get seven guns from local dealers despite concerns over their mental health. All right. So let's let, let's put this in the context. You looked at the past decade and how Tennessee has become a gun friendly state. And this isn't the first mass shooting that we've experienced. In the past, there has been other mass shootings here that didn't move the needle, right? Right. Yeah. So there were two significant mass shootings here in Nashville specifically, one in 2017 and one in 2018. The first was a church shooting in Antioch. One person was killed and seven were wounded by a man named Emmanuel Sampson. He was armed with a semi-automatic pistol and police found a note written by Sampson who's black indicating that he wanted to take the lives of white churchgoers as revenge for that shooting in 2015 at the South Carolina AME Black Church. Then in 2018, an Illinois man named Travis Reinking walked into a Waffle House restaurant in Antioch and opened fire with an AR-15 rifle. In that shooting, four people were killed and several others were injured. What was the response then? Did people call for changes to our gun laws? Yes. So in the church shooting, um, Samson's father said that he actually asked police to take his son's guns away out of concern for his mental health, but they did not do it. And this was sort of a prime example of how difficult it is for law enforcement to actually intervene, given what the laws are now. In the case of the Waffle House shooting, law enforcement in Illinois had ordered Ryan King to give up his guns because of prior offenses. Those firearms were given to his father, but one of them was used in the shooting. And that transaction is called third-party gun dispossession. Mm. When authorities order someone to give up their guns, they can turn them over to a friend or a relative. And after that shooting, lawmakers in Illinois, where Ryan King came from, actually passed a law to close that loophole. But here in Tennessee, where the shooting actually happened, similar legislation was introduced and did not pass. The shooting also prompted an unsuccessful call for restrictions to military-grade assault weapons, uh, which is what we saw in the Covenant shooting. Meanwhile, over the years, our gun-friendly laws have also attracted weapons manufacturers to the state. Connect those dots for us. So as I've been researching this, it's really clear how big of an impact that the 2012 Sandy Hook school shooting had. After that shooting, some states 
relatively like the northern states uh, or progressive states passed um, gun reforms that these manufacturers said would limit them. And Tennessee didn't give any indication of following suit after that shooting, which is part of why companies have chosen to call the state home. Both elected officials and company leaders have said that explicitly. So Tennessee is home to several gun manufacturers. We have big names like Beretta and Smith & Wesson. Then there's also GS Performance, which is a Glock handgun accessory and parts manufacturer and one of the largest suppliers of firearms, accessories and weapons upgrades called Troy. And Tennessee in the past has incentivized many of those companies to move here with benefit packages and deals. What role did Governor Bill Lee play in recent gun company announcements? The governor has been a major proponent of these companies moving to Tennessee. He chose to go to the Beretta company site for the bill signing in 2021 when Tennessee loosened that gun permit law. And for Smith & Wesson, uh, he described the jobs there as being, quote, life-changing for families. Here are some of the selections from that speech. It really matters because it impacts human beings in this state. It impacts families in this state. It impacts lives for good in this state. I'm proud that every one of those will have Tennessee on the firearm itself. We're we're grateful. So there we have the governor essentially talking about these gun companies solely as an economic driver and not really talking about the proliferations of those guns in this state. You can also imagine that once Tennessee has established a reputation and gun manufacturers move their operations here, that the GOP might find it even harder to change course now. Paige Flager is WPLN's criminal justice reporter. Paige, thanks for your time. And as always, thanks for your reporting. Yes, thanks so much. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation on guns. We'll talk with a survivor of gun violence and a gun control advocate about what changes they would like to see. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. No matter what part of the country you live in, gun violence affects all of us. Mass shootings draw our collective attention to places like East Lansing, Monterey Park, Uvalde, and most recently, Louisville. And of course, the Covenant School shooting happened right here in our city. Over the past few years, our state has seen its fair share of gun violence with one of the highest rates in the country. Many of those acts of violence don't make national news. It can even happen to people who are trained in how to use guns properly. That was the case for my next guest. Twana Chick is a retired police officer and gun violence survivor. Twana, thank you for being here today. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate you being here. And so... You retired from the police force to take care of your aging parents. That's right. And at that time, I understand that your brother, who was living with your parents then, had issues with substance use and was having mental health problems. When did you first sense that he might be a danger to himself or the rest of the family? It was about the last year down to about the last eight months of his life that sometime during that point things changed 
and there were not many overt signals. He was extremely intelligent. He was very careful to not reveal things that he knew would provide evidence of serious trouble. But there were some things that really got my attention and caused me to uh, have some concerns. What were one of the things that tipped you off? It was a lot of different things. He had lost four jobs. He started isolating himself. He started not leaving the house. He started really being obsessed with his weapons. He would fire those weapons only when I got home from work because I retired, but I didn't quit working. Mm -hmm. Um, And he would fire them as close to my property as he could. He began building huge fires, and he would sit closer than most reasonable people would be comfortable sitting. Um, He stopped having as much contact with his children. There were a lot of things. Now, because of your career as a police officer, you knew what steps to take in a situation like this. What did you do once your worries really reached a peak? I talked to my parents a lot before it, before the event happened, and there were no overt reportable offenses. And on on Friday before the event happened, my dad had a hip replacement, so I was there more. And on Monday, it was a holiday, uh, was the first time an actual threat was made. And my brother told my dad that he was going to go in the backyard and burn down the house and shoot himself. My dad reported that to me, and that was the first time anything had actually been said. We reported that, and we used that immediately to go talk to the police department. I had been talking to counselors and stuff way before that to try to make sure there was nothing else that could be done. I wanted to make sure there was an objective set of eyes, a professional um, reviewing everything with me because I knew I was too close to the situation. Mm-hmm. And so we went and, and spoke with them, reviewed all these things I've just told you and, and more things. Uh, and that was on Wednesday morning, July 14th. We went down there and we talked to him for three hours. And I had involved the Tennessee Lawyers Assistance Program. My brother was an attorney. Uh, he actually worked for the state of Tennessee. Um and we, we reviewed everything, trying to see if there was anything we were missing that we might use to ward off what I thought was going to be a suicide. Hmm. Um, and the best that we had was an assault by intimidation. And that was simply not going to be sufficient due to statements that he had made about Uh, They will not take my guns away and his fixation on guns. His diagnosis was narcissistic personality disorder with obsessive compulsive traits. Mm. So he would get fixated on things, compulsed about things. So so to be clear real quick, you did, you had already asked by this point for TBI to restrict him from purchasing guns, That had been a couple of years earlier, yes. He had, um, he had gotten... He had done some veiled threats 
against his ex-wife. And uh, she made a report in another county. And I had, at that point, his I legally had a firearm of his because he had been in two different institutions. But see, he was never committed. He was never legally adjudicated to be mentally deficient. So the the things that exist wouldn't have applied. There was no mechanism for removing weapons. But I had that one. And so I contacted the TBI and told them what was going on and asked them if they could please find some way to flag him because I was afraid that something else was going to happen. I knew he wasn't going to get well on his own, Mm -hmm. and he didn't believe he was sick. So I knew he was going to get worse as he got older. And so my parents and I had planned on how we were going to take care of him. We didn't think that he would ever be able to work again. It, It was just getting worse. And so one day when you were out with your mother... Your father called you because things with your brother had gotten really out of hand. It, can you can you tell us what happened next? Yeah, it was the same day that we went down and talked to the Family Safety Center that we spent three hours down there. And we had planned that the next day, the Tennessee Lawyers Assistance Program, another private attorney and a couple of counselors were going to get together and try to basically do an intervention and see if we could talk him into getting some help. We spent three hours there. I took my dad home, got him situated just a few days after his hip replacement, and uh, left to take my mom out to try to give her a break. And while we were gone, my brother started sending me a string of text messages. Because there had been repetitive patterns, if he was texting me, I knew he was also after my dad. So I called my dad and used the safe word that we had developed just a few hours earlier to ask him if he was okay. And he said, no. I said, I'm on my way home. Um, My brother had repeatedly threatened to sue me. So I was also running a phone tape recorder uh, when I got home. And I'm really glad now that I had that going because it has allowed me to go back and and review it and know that I really didn't do anything to cause this. This was just mental health issues. When I arrived there, um, his eyes were jerking back and forth. I thought he had overdosed or maybe he had underdosed, tried to ask if he needed an ambulance, uh, tried to ask several different things, and he kept going inside the house and coming back out. And my dad said, uh, you know, and he was so prophetic, He said, this is not going to end well. He said, I think he has a mental health issue. I've tried to tell him that. I can't be really blunt, but I've tried to tell him that. Don't you? And at that moment, my brother walked out firing. um, And he shot um, 12 rounds at me. He hit me 10 of those 12 rounds and saved the last round for himself. And all of this was in front of my mom and dad. You were shot 10 times Yes. by your brother, and then later, after moments later, he took his own life. I know this really may be hard for you to talk about, but can you, can you tell me what was going through your mind when that happened? Your brain is really interesting. It, it turns on the survival mode, and you're not actually having to think about it. I had 
28 years of law enforcement training, and I was able to simply react. And without thinking about it, I knew how many rounds he had fired. Um, without thinking about it, I knew I had to keep moving. I knew I had to try to get some distance. I knew I had to, I, I thought I would try to make it to the garage and find something, anything to fight with. Um, and when I heard the 13th round, I even knew that that round had not come towards me because the others, you hear them, you hear them hitting you, you feel them, you hear them whizzing by. And I knew that last one didn't. So I knew in that instant that it was over. And the whole thing was only 14 seconds mm. long. Um, but I just kept thinking, keep fighting, move, move, move. Um, it was all autopilot. Mm. What do you credit for your survival? The training from the police department, the fact that I didn't freeze. If I had frozen, because the first round hit me in my lung, if I had not immediately begun moving, the others probably would have been straight on and probably not survivable. Um, because I got hit four more times in the chest, but they were across the chest. They they were not direct. They didn't actually enter inside like my rib cavity. Um, so training uh, and also the years that I'd spent before I was a police officer in the medical community and learning how to sort of self-assess. I had an arterial bleed and I was able to stop that and keep pressure and everything until the medics got there. I, w I wonder how has the Covenant shooting affected you? This Every. Every shooting, mm. every shooting makes me think about it. Um, I was very fortunate that I already had a strong background in counseling. I had already been talking to a counselor and I've continued talking to one. Um, and so I had a pretty good set of tools in my own personal toolbox. And the only thing that I can do now about it is to try to make something good come from it. So um, when these other shootings happen, you know, I've been by Vanderbilt a few times and made contact with other victims there to let them know, hey, this is going to be hard, but it's survivable. I'm still doing physical therapy, mm. you know, and it's been 20 months. Um, and so I want them to know that this gets better. Uh, it's really important when... This happens like the first time somebody just fired shots in my neighborhood. You know, I've had a physical reaction and I have to tell myself I'm safe. Um, even some of the physical therapy, they put you in certain positions initially and you suddenly relive the experience and you just have to tell yourself I'm safe. And it gets better each time. Every time I talk about it, it gets better. Um, when people tell me that hearing uh, my story has helped, that makes it better. It loses its power over me a little each time. Now, there is a moment just days after the Covenant shooting where Representative William Lambert asked student protesters what gun they'd be comfortable being shot with. And it's it's really hard for me to repeat that. But, you know, he's, that's what he said to kids in the wake of this tragedy. Given your experience, everything you just told us, Twana, how do his remarks resonate with you? He said that from an unknowing place. He didn't understand what he was saying. I was shot with a 40 caliber. My brother actually owned three AR-style rifles. If he had taken the time to get one of those out, I would not be here. Um, 
I, you know, I, I have shown you the shirt that I was wearing when this happened, and every bullet hole through that shirt is uh, melted around the edges from the velocity of that round. And even like the rounds that went through my legs, um, I described it to the doctor that it was like there was a, a small explosion in my leg, the percussiveness of that round traveling through. And it's like three or four times greater with the, the rifle rounds. The, the, you know, they're moving faster. Um, they're doing more damage. Um, so it would not have been survivable for me if it had been that. Um, I think if he, if I could sit down and talk to him and show him things and um, explain it on a personal level, it's, it's very interesting for people to make statements like that because they're just thinking about pieces of metal and polymer plastic and paper. They're not thinking about the people who end up on the other sides of those projectiles. And if we can do something reasonable, you know, I'm a gun owner. I don't want to take away people's guns. Um, I want them to be safe. I want them to lock them up. I want there to be a mechanism in place so that when someone has a situation like mine, or maybe they have someone who is simply, and I say that with quotation marks, if they're simply suicidal, we don't want to lose those people either. Those families hurt just as much. Audrey mm -hmm. Hale's family hurts. Mm -hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about the state of guns in Tennessee in the wake of the deadly Covenant School shooting. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. Now, I'd like to bring in my next guest. Linda McFadgen Ketchum is a gun control advocate with Moms Demand Action Tennessee. Linda, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you. We just heard Tuana's personal experience with gun violence. How, how do you respond to that? Tawana's a hero. I'm so proud of her speaking out and using her voice and telling her horrible story because it will be heard and it may change some minds. You're a retired educator who's working to change gun laws in the state. Tell us, why did you decide to get involved in this mission? I had a some personal experience with gun violence and death. Uh, we had family members who died in a murder-suicide with a gun many years ago that no one knew the shooter had. Um, and then a, a good family friend was shot in the head in the Unitarian Church shooting in Knoxville about 12 years ago. Thankfully, she survived, but that brought it closer to home. But it was the Sandy Hook shooting which pushed me into full-time activism about this because I had been a teacher, and I didn't need to see the photographs to know what those little bodies looked like. And it's just unthinkable to me that we would tolerate something like that in this country. You've been active here in the state for the past decade. Tell me, how has the gun control debate evolved in our state during that time? This is my 10th session uh, at the General Assembly. When we first began in 2014, we were naive and inexperienced and pretty traumatized by what had happened at Sandy Hook still. Um, there was no voice at all 
for our side. It was all guns everywhere. Here we go. Um, Second Amendment. Um, there was no voice for safety or gun violence prevention. And we naively thought that if we had our facts straight and told our stories, that lawmakers would make good decisions and pass good gun laws for us. But we quickly learned that uh, the com in the committees where we would appear, that most of the lawmakers had already decided how they were going to vote. Mm. And so we would speak, uh, testify. We would have survivors tell their stories. We would ask for change. And some of them would not even look at us. Sometimes they hide behind their hands like junior high school boys mm. and joke or look at their phones or walk out. The worst of it is that survivors, they will not look at face-to-face. -face. Mm. And that we notice that. The survivors notice that. It's hard for them to tell those stories. You know, as we mentioned earlier, Governor Bill Lee issued an executive order to in, intended to strengthen background checks for all gun purchases. And he asked the state legislature to put forward an order of protection law, also known as a red flag law, though he didn't use that term specifically. You know, Linda, how do you react when you heard that news? Oh, I had a tiny, tiny bit of hope. Mm. It was a little crack in a wall that's been getting stronger and harder to to breach for 10 years. Um, I believe what he wants is an extreme risk protection order law for Tennessee or, or a red flag law. And that's something we've been pushing for and working hard to pass for about three years. So this is good news. And I think he is signaling the supermajority to get on board. Mm. And, and they should. It's time. Now, Tawana, if there had been a red flag law in place at the time, do you think it could things would have turned out differently for your brother, possibly? Well, I can't know, but it would have certainly been a tool in our toolbox. And we discussed it. And I say when I say we, it was myself and the, the counselors, the detectives discussed it at the time. And what I found out later was that when my dad and I left that session, they were more concerned than I was. And they discussed it among themselves to try to make sure there was not anything that had been missed because uh, I think they were objective enough to be more cognizant of the extreme danger I was in. And my mind was protecting me. I wasn't able to see that to the same degree that they were. Um, and so they discussed it and there simply was no option. It would have been great to have one more option. Mm. When you look at the benefit and what you might be able to keep families from going through, my goodness, why wouldn't you try? Why wouldn't you want that tool in your toolbox? Mm -hmm. um, and even if it only saves one suicidal person, you know, persons who have not been successful with suicide, who have attempted but not ended their own life, I've gotten to talk to a few of them, and they are grateful later on that they are still here, you know, so there's benefit. There's benefit for everyone. In our situation, it affected us immediately, and his children will be affected forevermore. But if you look at some of the larger situations like Covenant School, there are thousands of people directly affected. Why wouldn't we do something that could have the potential to help so many people? And 
-hmm. Let's be reasonable about it. Um, We can be reasonable and meet the needs of gun owners and of the public to be safe in their Mm -hmm. daily lives. You know, we had the Waffle House shooting in 2018 and now the Covenant School shooting. They both seem to galvanize a lot of folks around gun control. Linda, you mentioned a little crack of hope at the governor's announcement. I want to ask you, do you think that this moment will lead to change? I think this moment, the covenant moment, Mm -hmm. led the governor to say what he said. And I think he is inviting the supermajority to get with it and and do something. That's what the that's what the thousands of people down there are saying. And so, yes, I have a little bit of hope. You think they you think the supermajority will get with it, as you're saying? I'm going to say yes. That is my guest, Linda McFadgen Ketchum. She's with Moms Demand Action Tennessee. She was joined by Twana Chick, gun violence survivor and retired police officer. Thank you both for being here. Really appreciate talking with you. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk with a doctor about what guns do to the human body and a security expert on the importance of firearm safety. Do you own guns? Have you experienced gun violence? We want to hear from you. So tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. This hour is all about guns in Tennessee. The recently, the recent deadly mass shootings at the Covenant School has reignited calls for stricter gun laws. Governor Bill Lee has issued an executive order to strengthen background checks and called on the state legislature to create a new order of protection law, more commonly known as a red flag law. Now, some gun control advocates don't think that that goes far enough, while gun rights advocates have already expressed opposition. So what are the safe and ethical ways to approach guns? My next guest is here to help us understand. J.C. Shegog is a security consultant, risk manager, and firearms expert. He's also a gun owner. J.C., thank you very much for being here. Welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you for inviting me. Really great to have you. So, you know, I think it's fair to to say that you've spent some time around guns. You joined the military after graduating high school, and later you became a Department of Defense police officer, SWAT team leader, and instructor. Now— Part of your work is training people in firearm management and safety. Why'd you choose to do that? Why'd you take that path? I think that with the uh, proliferation of guns in the society, that there's going to be a need for people to be trained. I've seen where uh, environments with people that are not trained, that are not familiar they cause a lot of self-damage and damage to their to their community. Mm-hmm. You know, any American who's seen an action movie, they think they know what guns are capable of. But you've seen the effects of guns up close in your time in the military and as a police officer. Tell me, what is the biggest misconception you run into when working with clients? That um, that they really think that they know how to shoot and. When you learn how to shoot, you learn safety, you learn uh, 
proper ways of handling and they don't know that. So all they see, like you say, is uh, action movies and TV shows. So all they think they know is point and pull the trigger. And it's a lot more to it than just that. What should people know? What do you want folks to know about what some of the guns out there, what they're truly, truly capable of? Well, guns are a weapon of death and destruction. Guns are not less lethal. They're not toys. They're used to to take lives. And you have to respect that tool for that cause. And this is why we train people in order for them to respect that tool for that cause. They have to know when to and when not to, because it's it's being done in such a, a, a unnecessary rate that it's 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 shameful almost. It's 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 really sad. My next guest also knows what guns can do. Dr. Jay Wellens is the chief of pediatric neurosurgery at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Dr. Wellens, thank you for being here. Thank you, Khalil. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. It's an important topic. Yes, it is. And I'm glad that you're here to discuss it with us today. So on the day of the shooting at the Covenant School, you were at the hospital ready to respond. What was that day like for you? Well, you know, it was day like any other day. You're in clinic with, you know, one foot answering your, you know, one foot in clinic, one foot answering pages on call. And um, all of a sudden I looked down and I had about six messages from various people saying it was a mass casualty event. Um, and, you know, we're a level one trauma center here at Monroe Carroll Children's Hospital of Vanderbilt. So we, we do simulations from time to time. And, you know, you just kind of think it's clearly, clearly must be a simulation. And then about a minute later, I got a phone call from the chief of staff that said, Jay, this is not a drill. Uh, you know, we need you downstairs. And so, you know, I got downstairs and, you know, you're you're one member of a team. There, there are 30 people down there. Plus, you know, there's the there's a pediatric surgery and pediatric ER specialist running the, the you know, the the, the whole, you know, um, drill or the whole active, you know, shooter issue. And you have pediatric ENT and anesthesiologist. I'm there as the pediatric neurosurgery, um, you know, part of that, you know, our group with our resident. And then there's a, you know, a whole bunch of nurses and a bunch of support personnel that are there. And, you know, Khalil, we're all waiting, you know, and they, you know, one of the children that, and, you know, arrived and had not survived. And we kept hearing that there might be more coming and we waited, we waited. And we waited until finally they dispersed us because there was nobody coming because they had all died. Mm. And, um, you know, that's a that's a pretty profound degree of sadness and silence in a place where what we want to do is save children's lives. I imagine that's pretty devastating. Yeah. You know, I, I tell you, Khalil, you watch the um, the videos of the police officers, you know, who uh who ran into harm's way, you know, you, you later on, you read the reports of some of our journalists here in Nashville who say that some of them didn't even have a chance to get their body armor on. You know, that's, that's how much they wanted to, to run towards the fire and run towards the issue. And you think about how those teachers there, you know, trained by people like Mr. Chigog to, to get the kids out, you know, to, to do what, what, what we can do. Um, and then, you know, you think about the paramedics and what they can and can't do. And 
And it's like a bucket line, you know, and all the groups here at the Children's Hospital who want to do our part, you know, who are ready to save kids, you know, through the most horrendous injuries. Uh, it's just, um, it was just, it's just hard, you know, and, you know, you think about this recent shooting in, in, in Louisville, and, you know, you watch the head trauma surgeon do a, um, you know, do a TV interview and he, and, you know, some of those people made it to the hospital, you know, clearly some died, but, you know, some required surgery. Well, you know, children and teachers are not wearing body armor. And, you know, when the, the weapons are such that they have, you know, a large capacity, they're high volume and they have low recoil. And those three things combined together, that does a whole lot of destruction to the human body. And I can't even begin to tell you what that does to a child, not only in the chest, which is kind of the main area, um, you know, uh, very moving, you know, earlier discussion um, with the young woman who was shot and how she quickly learned to turn her body to help you know, deflect the other shots that came in, mm -hmm. you know, these are, these are just, you know, awful things to, to happen to children and they don't survive. You know, you can, you can actually build a trauma bay in every single hospital. I mean, every single uh, school, just put a trauma bay right there, staff it with surgeons and staff it with nurses. And these weapons of destruction are so powerful that you're not going to be able to have anybody survive because of what it does to the human body. You know, let me ask you this. You know, earlier in the show, you 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 mentioned Twana Chick, our our former guest, who was a survivor of gun violence. She was shot twelve times by a handgun. But a lot of these mass shootings, they're using an assault rifle for this. And I would I do want to give a warning to listeners. But you know, can you tell us about the effect of an assault rifle that it has on the human human body and and, and specifically children? Yeah. Well, you know, I wrote. You know, I. You know, there's this concept that a picture is worth a thousand words. And so I tried to reverse it about six months ago and say a thousand words is worth a picture. And I wrote it in a Time Magazine article about what it was like uh, to try to save a child that had, you know, made it, you know, to the hospital after a gunshot wound to the head. And, you know, I mean, it's, there's a, what happens is the, you know, as the bullet hits the body at a high velocity, it tends to deform and then it also can fragment. And so then this deformed and fragmented pieces that are still moving at a high velocity, there's this concept called cavitation. And what happens, it's like a, it's like a, a pillow of destruction of air around each one of these, either the bullet or the fragments of the bullet. And so while you have a, you might have a smaller entrance wound, the exit wound is like a, it's like a blowout. Hmm. And, and, you know, remember these things are designed as weapons of war. You know, they're, they're designed to, to come up against, um, you know, people that are a threat to our uh, republic. That's what they were built for. They were built to help, you know, help our army and help our um, people that are in law enforcement uh, really be able to take a shooter down and are, are to help defend the republic. They were not designed to shoot children in schools. They're not. And, you know, there's pretty profound work that's done here at the Center for Child Health, Child Health Policy at Vanderbilt. And it, you know, it looks at the work that's being done in schools. And, you know, a survey of parents that was done even back in fall of 2022, you know, parents are for more resources at, at the school and there are four active shooter drills, just like the stuff that Mr. Chigag is doing. But, you know, they're also in favor of having laws in place to help store guns adequately. You know, that you could, 
you know, there's a 85% lower risk of unintentional injury and 78% lower risk of suicide when guns are stored correctly. Just, just simple stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things that can be done. And, and you know, you mentioned um, about some of the, you know, the recent discussion by our, by our governor. And, you know, I will say that before that, there was not a lot of hope um, in terms of what, where we fall on the, on the scale. Um, and it was it was it did cause me to have hope to hear Governor Lee stand up and, and ask for, you know, these order of protection, or these extreme list, extreme risk laws and ask the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation to see if that's going to work as well as it should. You know, I'm old enough to remember the, the Brady, the Brady laws the, when Ronald Reagan was shot. And oh, I'm yeah. old enough to remember the assault, you know, the, the assault weapon ban and the effect all that had. And so, you know, now as I look at this, just from an epidemiological standpoint, it's pretty profound to see all the things that our society can can do to try to reduce this injury to children. Yet at the same time, people are uh, pro pro gun rights. People are saying that it's infringes upon their Second Amendment rights. Now, JC, you are a gun owner and you also train people in the safety of guns. Do you believe that putting limits on gun ownership infringes on your Second Amendment rights? What do you mean by putting limits on it? Gun control, maybe potentially a, an assault weapons ban to reinstate the assault weapons ban. Would that put an infringement upon your Second Amendment rights? I think that there is a um, there is a hurdle for assault weapons because um, there's a difference between hunting weapons, sporting weapons, and assault weapons, and um, most people do not have access to quote unquote assault weapons. They have access to the weapons that look like assault weapons. They don't particularly have the, the same function, which is the 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 automatic or the uh, the triple um, the function that like when you pull the trigger one time in semi-auto mm-hmm. um if it comes out three like, times or if it comes out uh fully automatic that's considered the assault type weapon um but what i what i do uh try to advocate for is for there to be uh more more training, more understanding. Um, like the doctors say, storing it, being uh, being able to store it, having the ability to properly store your weapons. I think those things need to be put in place because this is obviously those areas that are the weakest. Well, how how do you what do you recommend for your clients? What are some of the best ways? best practices in store in the storage of guns, particularly if children are in the household. If the children are within the household, you want to be able to to store the gun where the children does not have any access whatsoever, Uh, be it a a key lock, be it a combination lock, be it a biometric lock. You, You do not want them to have any access to it at all. And at the same time, you're telling them that you cannot have access to this and you know there will be consequences if you try to access this 
This is not for you. You are not at an age or understanding where you can handle this without my presence. Because I know I do teach children. I've taught children how to how to shoot. And they they are, I tell the parent that, you know, if you buy them a weapon, they they cannot handle that weapon in no shape, form, or fashion without you being present. And then without them knowing the the proper safety uh, rules on handling weapons. Now, you know, in reference to the Covenant school shooting, some state lawmakers mm-hmm. are suggesting arming teachers. What do you think of that idea? I think that is a very uh, bad idea. I think teachers are all already overworked and underpaid. And to have a teacher pull a, a what we call a direct action uh, force or security protection component uh, it, to me is is ridiculous. You have people who are already trained for that type of work, and to put that responsibility, that 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 mental weight, back on a teacher's shoulders or on a teacher's shoulders, to me that is, it's it's just too much. I I, I would highly. Uh, uh, vote against something like that. Khalil, can I can I just bump in here and just say that I 100% agree with Mr. Chicago on that, and not only just me, but so do the parents of Tennessee. Again, that same poll by the you know Center for Child Health Policy here at Vanderbilt, less than 40% of parents polled are interested in arming teachers. You know, so again, if it's a republic and our legislatures are our legislators there to help us, you know live our lives, you know, with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and also be representative of what what the people feel. If less than 40% are interested in arming teachers, that does not seem to be the way that we need to go. And and just like Mr. Chigog, you know, I'm a gun owner as well. You know, I went through my family home of 50 years down in Mississippi and found my old 22 and 12 gauge and, you know, brought them back and cleaned them and took my 22 out to some friend's land and shot, taught my teenagers how to clean it and take care of it and and shoot it so that they weren't scared of it and they understood how guns work and did it in the same ways that we were taught as children when we were doing you know regulated safety training so you know i i I think there's a role for education i think there's a role for it's just a big epidemiological public health issue and there's a lot of things that we can do on this sliding scale to make a difference we're gonna have to end it there i want to thank my guest dr jay wellens uh, chief of pediatric neurosurgery at vanderbilt university medical center and jc shegog security consultant risk manager and firearms expert thank you both for being with us today i'm sure we will pick up this conversation in the future. We want to thank you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Rose Gilbert. Our senior producer is Steve Harouche. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tutto. The masterminds behind our theme music are Laurent and Demir Blade. Special thanks to Paige Flager and Tasha A.F. Lemley. And the conversation doesn't end here Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and let us know what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.